Here's a quote I'd like to read for you. The single greatest loss in my time has been the idea that we are moral agents. Religion helped a great deal here. Religion taught that we are accountable for our actions. Tribute is still paid to it today, but all that we've been talking about indicates that nobody really expects it anymore. That was Bill Moyers, the political commentator, who gave that quote 29 years ago. These words were also true 2,800 years ago when Hosea, the prophet of God, was alive. And it's been the story of 13 chapters where we have investigated the rebellion of God's people to God and God's law. Though confronted by Hosea numerous times for their sin, Israel has refused to repent. They have hung on to their idol worship. They have continued to find their hope in political and military clout instead of the strength of God. And so we're now in this last chapter. And my prayer is that these truths will be used by the Holy Spirit to awaken us of maybe our own idols, things that we have depended on instead of God himself. So let's all look to the person and the promises of God as our hope. That's my prayer. Let's all stand as we look at these first four verses in Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. There are several other verses in this chapter, but we're going to look at these first four. This is a kind of confession that Hosea hopes that Israel would participate in. And unfortunately, they did not. And the majority experienced the judgment of God with Assyria invading Israel and many losing their life in this. Father, as we look at this historical event of your judgment upon Israel, we are, um, some might be prone to think that you're not an Old Testament kind of God. You don't judge sin anymore. Others might think that there's just no application to us today. But I'm convinced we would be mistaken. We believe that your word is true. And while we're not Israel, we believe that you still think seriously about sin and idols and that there are consequences to those things when we participate in them. And certainly as your people, we know that we can fall easily the habits and bondages that can literally destroy us in the sense of our bodies and our life here on this earth. And so I pray that you would help us to think clearly that our hearts would be humble. We acknowledge that there's a lot of things we don't know and that we don't understand. 
and we need the wisdom of your word. Father, we come today to you not as people who think they have uh, the only truth, uh, but that we know that there are many good and godly churches in this area that we pray for and ask that you'll strengthen them and strengthen their leaders. And we appreciate that you've allowed us to be a part of that stream. Um, and may today you encourage the saints all over this area. And so guide us and may your spirit speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Hosea 14 gives us a map for repentance and restoration. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Let there be no mistake as to how the problem is diagnosed for Israel. The problem was not that they did not follow properly the latest church growth manuals. The problem was not their lack of education. Their problem was not because they failed to be culturally relevant. Their problem was succinctly stated as their need to return to the Lord whom they had forgotten. And they rejected him through their idol worship. They stumbled by rejecting God's moral law. And it says that they committed iniquity. Sin means to cross a line. Iniquity is more of a, of a deliberate, continual choosing of rebelling against God's law. It's deeply rooted it's premeditated. It's a refusal to repent. That's what was going on with Israel. Now, God forgives iniquity, but prolonged iniquity leads to a hardness. It leads to the unnatural affections that are spoken about in Romans 1. The idea is that our disordered desires become entrenched in our heart, and we are in bondage. Bondage does not imply that we are no longer culpable, but that we have convinced ourselves that we no longer have a choice. This is the mind of the modern man, that they don't have a choice with their sin. That's the way of our flesh. This is what creates a bondage to iniquity, at least one of the things that creates a bondage to iniquity. And our Hosea passage speaks of stumbling that comes as a result. We continue to stagger and fall, and we never connect the dots that our own choices are causing the problem. The first step that Hosea offers is repentance. We have to accept responsibility for our choices. I've shared with you many times Janet and I struggled in our beginning years in our marriage, and the primary problem was me not accepting the responsibility for my attitudes and my choices, and instead, blaming. Hosea says, you have stumbled. It is your iniquity. Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, I'll remind you that this was referring to premeditated murder and adultery that David had committed. And so there's great hope given to us when we acknowledge our sin. You, Israel, have repeatedly rejected the overtures of God's love and guidance and run to political power and idols. Could we not say that the history of Israel has some resemblance to our own nation and where we have traveled in just 250 years? This is the story of sin and and salvation and ruin and recovery of of the mercy of God for the man who rejects the laws of God. And now we find ourselves a nation becoming more and more bankrupt because we fail to acknowledge God and his moral law. Notice what the answer is. It's in returning to God. This is not a political ideology to be embraced, but the heart of issue is dependence upon God for security and hope. Part of the stumbling for people when they reject God is they they become void of any kind of moral sense. They're just grappling at things. A recent Agnes Reed poll asked over 1,500 Canadians for their moral perspectives on a wide variety of issues. Among the findings, 51% thought that using plastic straws is always or usually morally wrong. 20% thought the same of doctor-assisted suicide and 26% for abortion. The thinking is, I may have just had my elderly mother euthanized, may have had my unborn baby aborted, but I'm a good person because I use a bamboo, not plastic straw. I'm doing my part. And then you add to that the virtue signaling of denying clear biblical ethics in favor of these contrived morals. And it's a sign that our society is disordered. It's messed up. It's foregone a moral compass and left to its own. Verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say, take away my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Here is a clear turning away of the ritual of sacrificing bulls in order to simplify religious devotion to something more authentic, more honest in confession of sin. And let's just be quick to add that much of religion can get in the way of an authentic relationship and experience with God, right? Even our own. We can see our own programs, and we think that we're okay, but never really check our hearts. And what we are at home is different than what we are when we're together in our religious programs. 
that's a problem. And so, step in repentance as we acknowledge our iniquity. We want to return to the Lord. And Israel's encounter with God was not to be marked by just these outward shows like the bulls being sacrificed, but something that demonstrates their heart. Elsewhere in Hosea, we read, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Israel was thinking that if they sacrifice enough bulls, God will be satisfied. And Christians today often play this tit-for-tat game with God. You know, when I sin, I've got to somehow have this performance enhancement, get back to church, read more Bible, give more. This is far easier than doing the hard work of honest confession that spells out our sin, identifies the passions of our heart that mislead us. One of the reasons for me, and I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but one of the reasons for me at least with my personality, how journaling helps to lay out issues I'm going through, to just kind of have a a conversation with God and write out the thoughts and how much more clearly I can see myself in the mirror. And trust me, I don't always like what I see. And you're saying, well, finally, you realize that. I know, I get it. What confession does is that it, it restates reality. It, it's the truth of our sin to God. And we admit our sin, our offense, without varnish. You know, there are several online services popping up that have anonymous confession. People are trying to confess, but do so without a name. So they're trying to evade a certain degree of consequence. One actually left a cryptic message of having murdered someone in Chicago. See, we, we cannot cleanse our conscience with a nondescript, anonymous acknowledgement of basic facts. Here's some helpful hints. We have to state it clearly. We have to personalize our sin. You know, it was, it was me who sinned. We call it what God calls it. When adultery occurs, it's not because I just slipped up or I didn't mean to or it was just a meaningless thing. I sinned against God and I sinned against others, as David said in Psalm 32. And then we acknowledge the impact of our offense. For instance, there's an emotional toll when we use harsh words and we hurt others. And so I allow myself to feel the impact of those words and I empathize. You want to make the act of confessing your sin as pleasant as possible? Then make a full, not a partial confession. That's the message from a recent study conducted by researchers in the U.S. in Israel titled, I Cheated But Only a Little. Based on a series of studies involving over 4,000 people, the researchers found that people who only partially confessed a transgression felt worse than those 
who do not confess at all. Dr. Eel Peer, the study's lead author, had a surprisingly biblical angle on the results. He said, confessing to only part of the guilt of one's transgression is attractive to a lot of people because they expect the confession to be believable and guilt-relieving than not confessing. But our findings show the exact opposite. People seeking redemption by partially admitting their big lies feel guiltier because they do not make, uh, do not take complete responsibility for their behaviors. The Harvard, Harvard Business Review summarized the research this way. Confession is a powerful way to relieve guilt, but it works only if you tell the whole truth. Now, I affirm the truth of what this is saying. I just don't think it goes far enough because we also sin against who? A holy God. And the confession is acknowledging that we are breaking God's moral law. And it lays oneself at the mercy of God for his forgiveness. There's nothing else to offer. That's why Hosea is saying, this, this needs to be what you're saying to God. Lay yourself at the mercy of God. We cannot barter our good works somehow justifies us. We simply trust that because of his graciousness, God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. So Assyria was the political power of the day. And Israel's thinking, if we can coo up to them, just you know, tell them whatever they want to hear, give them whatever they want, you know, we can assuage this pending doom. But Hosea is saying Israel is to confess that they will no longer look to a powerful political power for protection. Riding on horses speaks of military strength. Part of the confession that they make is not to trust political might or military might. And the work of hands is to speak of the gods that they make in idols, and that's little g gods. And they should have admitted the making of these false, man-made gods. And when he says the orphan finds mercy, the penitent must acknowledge that Yahweh is a merciful father, that he's our source of hope, and he was the source of hope for Israel that has been severed from God in a practical, relational sense. Remember, he still has the Hesed covenant love for them, but in a practical sense, the fellowship is broken. Not trusting in political power is a rejection that our hope for the future is in our country. In this regard, a quote by Sidney Harris may shed some light. He says, the difference between patriotism and nationalism is that the patriot is proud of his country for what it does, and the nationalist is proud of his country no matter what it does. Well, the difference between patriotism and nationalism is instructive. Many American Christians have revealed a type of nationalism that is more important to them than their Christian testimony. The truth is, it's the gospel that should unite us. 
but it's the gospel that is put on the back burner because there's not complete political alignment on ancillary items. And this applies to the left and to the right. Sin is an equal opportunity employer. It's utterly heartbreaking that people you thought were friends, people you thought could have a sensible conversation seethe over a political issue and hardly raise an eyebrow over the gospel or a lost soul. You know, the testimony of Scripture is that circumcision, Jewish or Gentile background, were not to be impediments to unity because the gospel was the unifying source. These are race issues, um, historical religious issues, national issues that were going on. We went through it in the book of Acts. But the gospel was the unifying factor in all of this. But the last two years have proven that in the eyes of many Christians, your view of race, your view of mass, and vaccines are far superior to the gospel. And is indeed a sad state of affairs. It's not that you cannot discuss the issue. It's not that you cannot have a position. But we have to take our foot off the pedal. When our relationships fracture because of our insistence on a political issue. So, a little tip for the holidays. If you want to enjoy Thanksgiving this week, in that prayer, thank God for the gospel and not because there is a majority political opinion in the room. One Indian pastor said, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. It's why Jesus prayed this. I do not ask for these only, but ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's beautiful to witness in our congregation the unity that we have enjoyed, even though at times it's greatly tested. And I thank you for it. But it's a sad case. There's not a pastor that I know I haven't heard on a podcast who, who will affirm the truth of this, that many Christians do not have the stomach for unity because of what it takes. Because parting without working out relationships is much easier. Leaving without understanding does not require humility. Separating without forgiving does not demand obedience. Now, of course, there is a godly exodus 
But first, we have to check our hearts for working out unity, valuing relationships, and truly forgiving. First, we have to address the heart issues. And it works the other way as well. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I can't count the number of conversations I've had with people that are new to our congregation that I say, hey, you need to work out this stuff with your other church. You know, they'll share with me a story. Have you sat down and talked to your leadership? Have you sat down and talked to your pastor? Riding on horses refers to military power. They would no longer trust in military might. Now, this reference may be to Egypt, the country which supplied Palestine with horses. The psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's easy to take pride in military strength and to have this false sense of security. But can we not realize that God can take that away much quicker than how it was built in a nation? He is the sovereign God. For him by all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who's above all thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities? Listen, you know, you may be in a cycle where you are completely wigged out about the present leadership. You may be in a cycle where you're completely wigged out about the previous presidential leadership. Who's on the throne? Who's over the dominions, the rulers, the authorities? As Christians, we have to exhibit a confidence and security in the sovereign God of the universe. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? Israel must also confess that they cannot make a God with their own hands as they were doing with the Baal idols. Idol worship was in their past. We read about it in, with Aaron, with Jeroboam, who attributed the escape from Israel to these bull-calf idols. Israel was taking on the idols of their culture and not recognizing Jehovah God as the true God. So what are the ideologies, the world thinking of our day that people take on and use that as an idol? We've already talked about that. You could think of tolerance or freedom, our common American values propped up over anything else. And it many times gets in the way of the exclusive claims of Christ and the moral law of God. God was not in the mood for embracing some 
ideology that every religious claim was the same. That is idiocy. You can't, it's simply not true. There are so many religions that make exclusive claims, they can't be true at the same time. The idea that truth does not exist. I, I do this often in my ethics class when this comes up and people say, well, all religious claims are the same, you know, and, and uh, you know, you can't judge other religions. I go, stop, stop, stop right there. You're telling me you've never judged a religion? You're telling me you have never judged when you heard of a pastor cheating on his wife? Well, you've never judged the megachurch that's building million-dollar buildings and maybe not helping the single moms like they should. You've never judged that. Because you have no reason to do that if there's no reason to judge religion, right? But of course we do. Because morals do apply to those organizations just as much as it does to us as individuals. My point is that that's not some, you know, free zone where I'm just so open-minded, my brains leak out when it comes to religion. That it does matter what we believe. It does matter that our theology is fitting with the Bible. It does matter that what I believe about entering heaven through the grace of God through Jesus Christ. When God makes an exclusive claim about Jesus in the Bible... It's often interpreted through the modern mind as intolerant. But the deception is, is that it's the Christian claim that is railed against while hiding behind a tolerant claim. Israel's sin is so great and the punishment due them so severe, only a God of immense compassion would turn and receive them again. If Israel did not repent, the extent of God's compassion or if they did repent, excuse me, the extent of God's compassion is marked by his ear being bent toward a lone orphan crying out for justice. You know, all people are deserving of God's judgment, right? Everyone is. But in Christ, we find compassion. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's choosing. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God can do those things if our hearts are willing. Repentance means a healing from the apostasy. Apostasy is when people leave the plain truth of God for a deception, false teaching, idols, or ideology that denies God's provision in Christ, that denies the sufficiency of Scripture. So repentance aligns with the truth of God. Repentance also enjoys fellowship with God and mutual love between him and the worshiper being restored. I've, we've talked about this separation of understanding the fellowship and then the said love of God or the covenant love of God. You know, it's like in a marriage. I may be married to my wife, even though there are times you may go through a season where you might be upset with each other. You're not talking to each other. The fellowship is broken, but the relationship is intact. It's the same with God. God's not left us. There's still his said, the covenant part, 
but there's this feeling of separation. 1 John 1, 9 says he is faithful to forgive and cleanse those who confess their sin. Understand this, forgiveness itself is a gift of God. Lest Israel get the impression that God must respond to their repentance by restoring them, repentance itself and forgiveness is a gift of grace. When Hosea received the message to remarry Gomer, he's instructed to also love her. Remember, Gomer was a prostitute. It represents the affection of choice, a willful act, and God choosing to love his people so as restore them to himself. And that love knows no boundaries. It replaces the outpouring of divine wrath deserved by those who reject their covenant God. So Israel, will you repent? God is ready to forgive the repentant. Last weekend after doing the wedding, right after, during the reception, I struck up a conversation with a man commenting on his suit, dressed to the nines, sharp, well-coiffed gentleman. After a normal small talk, I discovered he was employed as a, like a marketing director of an NFL team. And after a couple minutes, I got a tap on my shoulder by a woman who introduced herself as the man's wife. And she motioned for me. She said, come here, come here. Oh, yeah? And so she kind of leans in. She goes, I have to tell you that my husband trusted Christ two weeks ago. And I'm like, what? I mean, for me, it was like the highlight of the weekend, all right? All the hoopla of the wedding, the dozens of conversations. Here was a spotlight that the most important interaction on earth is when a repentant person comes to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. My friends, could it be the call of the hour for us now? You could be repentant of your sin having never trusted Christ and that's what you need to do today. Or you could be repentant of a specific sin as a Christian and you're seeking forgiveness from God. He is able and willing to forgive. Let's pray.